Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. It's been a tough week. I kept searching for a specific reason, a single culprit for my discouragement. It's not hard to find contenders. My three-year-old giving up her nap, my kids fighting and being disrespectful, my own seemingly constant failures as a parent, our uncertain financial future, or any of the sickness, death, and daily bad news in our world. Then last night, I had a Zoom call with a group of moms that I used to meet with in person once a month. It was great to see everyone's faces, to hear how we've all been dealing or not. And yet, there's something distinctly isolating about literally muting yourself when you're not talking, not having the regular social cues that normally prevent us from interrupting each other. But it wasn't until I got off the call, when I burst into tears, that I realized the thing I was missing most. I miss human touch. It's a loss I didn't immediately place. One I assume didn't apply to me since I live with four other people, three of whom are constantly climbing all over me. But as I sat talking to those women, I missed the hugs that we greet each other with, and also the subtler things that I hadn't given much weight to before. The way that your shoulder touches the person next to you when you're sharing a couch, or the way a friend will playfully swat your leg or your shoulder in laughter or to make a point. The squeeze of a hand that signifies a certain closeness in a friendship. My family is generally an affectionate one. My husband and I make it a point to hug and kiss our kids and each other. But even in my own home these past few weeks, I realized that we haven't actually been touching all that much. My husband, Nate, and I have opposite shifts with the kids, so our time together is limited to a quick changing of the guard at lunchtime and then the shared job of putting the kids to bed in the evening. Usually, we're not touching at all during these exchanges. The kids have also been going to bed later, and so often, by the time the house is quiet, we just want to go to bed ourselves. Maria Konnikova wrote a fantastic story for The New Yorker in 2015. It's called The Power of Touch, and I'm quoting it today with Maria's permission. She writes, Even as the evidence increases, we continue to undervalue touch. Recently, the Toronto District School Board warned its employees that there is no safe touch when you work with children. Many of our kids spend most of the day in a touch-free zone. We don't mind getting a massage, but we fear embracing touch wholeheartedly, either because we think it's dangerous in the case of young children or touchy-feely in the case of adults. Maria's story looks closely at several powerful studies on touch, including one conducted by Harvard Medical School neurobiologist Mary Carlson and her husband, Felton Earls, a Harvard psychiatrist. Carlson and Earls studied children from the Romanian Lagone, the overcrowded institutional homes for Romanian children in the 1960s that were the direct result of Nicolae Ceausescu's efforts to increase Romania's industrial output by spiking the birth rate through government restrictions and bans on contraceptives and abortions and taxes on the childless. 
Carlson and Earls measured daily cortisol levels on some of these children, as well as those of children in a year-long early enrichment program for infants organized by child development specialist Joseph Sparling. Cortisol is the body's stress hormone, the thing that makes us go into fight or flight during an emergency. It also controls our mood, motivation, and fear. Not surprisingly, the cortisol levels of the children in the control group were higher than those of the enriched children. That pattern, in turn, correlated with lower performance on cognitive and physical assessments. By contrast, the children in Sparling's enrichment program performed better both physically and behaviorally. But those positive effects weren't permanent. Carlson said of the study, When the enriched kids return to the typical conditions that involve little touching, the physical and behavioral advantage they had obtained faded. Although the enriched group showed a better response to stress as long as 18 months later, they still were socially withdrawn and failed to respond normally to other children and adults. In other words, it's not enough to receive positive touch as a child. If we stop being touched, it affects us. Another study in Maria's story was conducted on elderly participants. Tiffany Field, the head of the Touch Research Institute of the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine, measured the benefits of regular conversation-filled social visits against social visits that also included massage. The group that got massages experienced emotional and cognitive benefits over and above those of the first. Field has found similar gains in both premature and full-term infants, pregnant women, children and adults with chronic pain conditions or emotional problems, and healthy adults. Even short bursts of touch, as little as 15 minutes in the evening in one of her studies, not only enhance growth and weight gain in children, but also lead to emotional, physical, and cognitive improvement in adults. Maria goes on to say, touch itself appears to stimulate our bodies to react in very specific ways. The right kind can lower blood pressure, heart rate, and cortisol levels, stimulate the hippocampus, an area of the brain that is central to memory, and drive the release of a host of hormones and neuropeptides that have been linked to positive and uplifting emotions. The physical effects of touch are far-reaching. In another set of studies, touch was shown to boost the immune systems of people who had been exposed to the common cold. Maria goes on to quote neurobiologist and author David Linden. Linden says, The body talks to the brain, the brain to the body. The notion that someone's immune system could be modified by activity in touch-sensitive regions of the brain is not at all crazy. One could certainly imagine a cellular-level explanation for how that would happen. These findings seem especially relevant right now, when so many of us are thinking and worrying about sickness. The lack of touch in many of our lives right now is real, especially for those of us who live alone. My own experience this week showed me that even those of us who live with someone might be undervaluing our need for touch. There's another layer to all of this, too, one that only occurred to me after my husband and I were talking about his recent trip to the grocery store. He noted that it's not just that we're not touching each other. It's that underneath our not touching is a pervasive and ongoing fear, fear of being infected or infecting someone else. It causes us to see everyone outside of our home as the potential enemy to our health and well-being. 
My friend Emily Chandler, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and one of the kindest, most generous people I have ever known, said that in her own practice, she's seen the current lack of physical touch in complicated ways. Emily says, People are telling me right now that shelter in place has made them feel like they have lost touch with reality and with other humans. Like life isn't really happening because they haven't seen their peers in a month. This is especially true for teens. I've had married couples admit that they are too afraid to have sex just in case they are COVID-19 positive and asymptomatic. I've had single adults admit they lied to their parents about the specifics of their social life so that they could break quarantine to be physically with their partner, to just be in a room together and be held. I asked Emily what we could do during this time to meet our need for touch. She provided several exercises that her clients have found helpful during this time as well as some additional resources to consider. I'll include these in my show notes, as well as a link to Emily's website for anyone who'd like to access those resources. I also asked Emily about a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with Pamela Ziss. I met Pamela through a webinar she offered, and she gave me permission to share with you a bit of our conversation. Pamela has a PhD in organizations and leadership and a master's in communication research and methodology. But these days, her work has turned to touch. She's using her more recent training as a havening technique practitioner to offer people ways to use comforting touch and imagery to feel more relaxed and in control. I'd never heard of havening techniques, and when I dug deeper into its origins, I found that there are over 3,000 practitioners worldwide. I also found stories of people who had found havening techniques to be an important tool in their personal growth. Even Justin Bieber is using it to deal with his anxiety. But I also found skeptics of the technique, who questioned its lack of extensive research. Havening has not yet been approved by the American Medical Association. I asked Pamela about this, and she welcomed and engaged my own skepticism. She said that what she finds so exciting about havening techniques is that we can actually change our brain chemistry. Though practitioners do use it to treat fears, phobias, PTSD, and other traumas, Pamela is primarily using Havening's use of touch, attention, and imagination to help people accomplish goals and increase resilience by building new neurosensory pathways. Though Emily doesn't use Havening techniques in her practice, she does use other touch-related techniques like tapping. Emily said that she believes in empirically-based research in psychology but said it's also not unusual for therapists to intuitively use techniques that are more closely tied with Eastern practices like acupuncture, and then for the research to catch up later to show why these things are working. My conversation with Pamela shed some additional light on why these past few weeks have felt so hard. She said that our brain craves patterns, structure, and routine. When these patterns are disrupted, we go into crisis management mode, and our brain produces more cortisol. Right now, the state of constant uncertainty we're living in is triggering that response all the time. And on top of that, we're not being touched as much as we need to be. Like the brains of those Romanian babies whose cortisol levels shot up when they weren't being touched, our brains are also producing more cortisol. Since our uncertainty and physical distancing aren't going away anytime soon, we need to figure out some way to manage our stress 
to ease off on the constant emergency response our brains are experiencing while also tending to our need for touch. Last night, after I got off my Zoom call with my mom friends and was in tears, I decided I'd put Pamela's work to the test. I went through a shortened version of an exercise she took us through during her webinar. On a blank piece of paper, I drew a circle. In the middle of that circle, I wrote, My Coronavirus Concerns. I drew lines coming out from that circle like spokes on a wheel, and on each line, I wrote everything I could think of that was making me feel anxious or afraid. My kids' education, our finances, my daily parenting failures, not connecting in meaningful ways with my husband, my friends and family getting sick or dying, not getting to see my 97-year-old grandmother again in person. I assigned a number from 1 to 10 for each of these worries based on their intensity. Then I sat back and closed my eyes, breathing deeply, rubbing my palms together, and then moving my hands from shoulders to elbow in a kind of self-hug. And I wept. Not just for the things I'd written down, but for the unnamed things I couldn't yet articulate. I hadn't realized how much I was holding on to, how much I needed to release. After a few minutes following Pamela's instructions, I stood up, stretched, yawned, and then took out another sheet of paper. On this one, I wrote, me at my best, in the middle of the circle. I let out a bitter laugh. I haven't felt at my best much lately. But then I picked up my pen and started filling in the spokes on my wheel. I gave myself permission to see myself as I know I can be. Someone who loves to laugh, who's up for adventures, who enjoys welcoming people into my home and really getting to know them. I let myself imagine that person showing up all the time. And once again, rubbing my palms from shoulder to elbow and closing my eyes, I let myself appreciate that person. I imagined the color of that person, a bright, clear sky blue pouring over me like sunlight. Once more, I stood up, stretched, and yawned. Finally, I made one last mind map, this one with emergence of self and society in the center. I let myself imagine the opportunities, possibilities, or even good that might come from this time. I was surprised by how many things I had to write down. Nate and I are making more consistent efforts with our parenting. I'm seeing more of my extended family on Zoom. We're living in more sustainable ways less meat and driving, and more cooking. Some of my friendships have grown deeper. My neighborhood has become more connected and generous. I'm reevaluating my priorities, stripping off all the excess to get to the things that matter most, tunneling to the roots of my faith, experiencing new life from its wiry depths. Even this podcast made the list, giving myself permission to create something every day. Once again, I moved my palms along my upper arms, letting myself soak in these possibilities. Then I stood up one last time, stretched and yawned, and glanced at each mind map. My coronavirus concerns hadn't disappeared, but I felt better about them, a little more able to face the challenges ahead of me. And there was something else, too. Maybe it was just allowing myself to breathe and think through these things in a way that decreased my cortisol, that turned off the fight-or-flight state I've been living in. Or 
Maybe it was the intentional mindful touch I gifted to myself. Either way, I felt a little more nurtured and cared for, a little less alone and isolated. Pamela ended our webinar asking us to physically stand up. She invited us to think about what we stand for the possibility of today. Today, I stand for the possibility of being more present and compassionate with my kids and my husband, for connecting with my kids before I correct them, for taking care of my body, for asking for help when I need it, for saying thank you to the people in my life who have loved me well, for reaching out to the people who might be feeling lonely or depressed or anxious right now. Today, I stand for the possibility of bringing more of my best self to each challenge I face. Today, I stand for hope. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the shelter-in-place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter-in-Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.